This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Welcome. This is Elise, the Managing Director of Pantsuit Politics. I'm so glad you've joined us today. While our team is off for the holidays, we've been sharing some of your favorite episodes from 2023. We pulled our premium community for the episodes that stood out to them from each quarter of this year. This conversation originally aired in August, and it's such a great example of what makes Sarah and Beth's approach to the news different. It's titled What We Got Wrong About COVID and is an exploration of exactly that. They explore how they thought about COVID throughout 2020 and 2021, 22, and how their approaches look to them in retrospect. As someone who made very cautious choices during the pandemic due to family health issues, I found this episode really useful. Not only did it feel cathartic to hear other people admit where they got things wrong, it was a really good catalyst for me to evaluate the same in my own approach. It was, after all, the first time most of us had lived through a global pandemic. We inevitably did all get things both right and wrong. As we head into 2024, which will certainly be another year of historic milestones for our country and the world, we are committed to continuing to take a different approach to the news, just like you'll hear in this episode. We always want to lead with curiosity and humility in our work. We hope that approach helps you process the news in a healthier way and keeps you grounded when the news cycle feels chaotic. For today, we hope this episode of Reflection will be a good thought experiment for you, not just about COVID, but also other events from the past few years, which you may be ready to reevaluate. Please enjoy and have the best holiday season available to you. Thank you so much for joining us at Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. Today, we're doing that in a big way. More than three years after we all learned what COVID-19 was and experienced varying levels of trauma and stress and change, Throughout lockdowns and loss, life is mostly back to normal for lots of people. But we have been shaped and reshaped by our experiences through the pandemic and wanted to take today to look back on the last few years and identify some of the things we got wrong about COVID, both personally and culturally. We've also invited Jennifer Sr. to return to our show. We love talking with Jennifer. Mm -hmm. And we thought it was important to ask her to share about her experience with long COVID, which is still a very present part of her life. Long COVID is a medical reality we're still coming to terms with, and it is impacting thousands of people in a variety of ways. And we know when we say life is back to normal for lots of people, it's lots of people, but not all people. And we wanted to really highlight that experience today as well. And outside of politics, we invited Jennifer to stick around and talk with us about her recent cover story in The Atlantic. And let me politely advise you to go get some tissues for that conversation. All right, before we start this conversation about COVID, we did want to take a minute, obviously, and acknowledge and discuss the firestorm and complete and total tragedy in Maui. The breadth and depth of this natural disaster is so impossibly hard to contemplate. As we are recording, 96 people have been reported dead. That is the largest loss of life in a fire in over 100 years in the entire country. The stories of survivors who sought shelter in the ocean for hours, 
the images coming from the town of Lahaina, which is is gone. It's it's gone. And it was a place of enormous importance to Hawaiians and to hear what has been lost, how much the recovery will cost, what it will take. It's just, it's overwhelming. Overwhelming is the only word I can bring to mind when I read stories, look at images, or try to talk about this tragedy. I know that this part of Maui is very special to many people in Hawaii, that it has real cultural significance and that this loss is felt on a number of different levels. Hawaii is such a unique place in the United States. And so I think it hits especially hard to see these images of such a special place burning. It's also hard to take in how much fire is shaping reality Mm -hmm. for the United States at this point in our history. When I think about our friends in Canada and what they're experiencing and the large-scale effect of those fires. The Western United States experiences so much fire. You know, fire is just terrifying in a pretty unique way and can wreak such devastation so quickly. And I'm afraid that's going to be a part of our story for a long while. I hope that we are learning a lot about how to better manage this when it happens. But just on a heart level, I feel so much for the people of Maui and Hawaii right now and and just want to send lots of love there. Fire and smoke. I'm like really overwhelmed by the stories of the smoke and how it moved and how it overwhelmed people. And it was like crushing, like crushing clouds of smoke. And I think with this particular fire, it's it's one of those moments where if you've never been to Hawaii in particular, you think, what do you like? It's such a surprise location because you have this image in your head of this sort of like tropical, lush paradise. And parts of Hawaii are absolutely like that. We vacationed in Maui almost 20 years ago, and I was so struck by how many different ecosystems were on this one island. But there are parts of Maui that look like California. Like it's just grasslands. And I think the reporting that much of this was an invasive species that is particularly flammable has been really interesting and important to think about and consider and It's just, it's so hard and it's so heartbreaking and you feel so powerless when people are suffering Mm -hmm. in this way and at this magnitude. And like you said, I think that that is a reality for us and it's another in a series of wake-up calls. It doesn't seem like the right word anymore. Of course, as we always are here at Pantsy Politics, we are committed to following this story, to doing what we can from our faraway place in Kentucky to donate and support the people of Maui and our hearts are with them. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
we are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special. And they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Several weeks ago, Matt Iglesias of the Substack Slow Boring wrote a piece called What I Got Wrong About COVID. He said, I was very frustrated intellectually and emotionally with school closures. I argued against closing schools before the vaccines were available, but had lost that argument internally to the politics of blue states. I wanted vaccination to be the game changer that ended NPI, so I expressed erroneous overconfidence about the vaccine's ability to block transmission. And because I overestimated vaccines' ability to block transmission, I overestimated the case on the merits for mandatory and quasi-mandatory means to promote vaccination. And he also talks about how quickly we abandoned the flatten the curve playbook for complete shutdowns. But we were both really drawn to this piece because of how rarely we take a moment to look back and examine the flaws in our own reasoning, both individual and collective. But it seems like a very useful exercise. And so we thought we would take Matt's lead and talk about some of these things. Even preparing for this conversation, I realized that I needed to make a bunch of different distinctions because... Often when we say, well, here's what I got wrong, you attach to that an immediate sense of regret. Mm-hmm. Or if you say, here's what the policy got wrong, you attach to that an immediate sense of nefarious motives or negligence in work and reasoning. And I think as I've reflected on COVID and continue to reflect on it, I'll probably have a different lens on this five years from now. But as I've reflected on it, I realize there are a number of things that I both got wrong and regret. There are a number of things that I got wrong and do not regret. Mm. There are a number of things that I, in hindsight, might do differently but feel neutrally about today. It's it's complicated. Yeah. One of the distinctive qualities of Matt Iglesias' writing is that's very intellectual, but very rarely emotional. <laughs> and so he's just so, like, you know, cool-headed. This is what I got wrong. And look, I just read that piece to you. If you listen to Pantsuit Politics during COVID, you can probably easily identify the sentence that I very much identified. I was so emotionally attached to the vaccine's ability to affect transmission. I was convinced, convinced that they would stop transmission. And I think back on that and I think, you know, I'm such a gut-driven person. I'm in the gut triad on the Enneagram. I can see the moments in time over my life where 
something I felt so strongly, like my gut was telling me, this is right, this is right, this is right. I was so wrong about. This is definitely in the top like five now (laughs) of my life, along with thinking that Barack Obama was going to lose the Democratic primary in 2007. Obviously, I had prejudices working for Hillary Clinton that informed that. But with the vaccine, I'm like, did I just want that to be true? Was I just blind to, you know, I am an internal optimist. And often my optimism serves me. But this time, I think it was that there was the newness of the the tech of the vaccines. I think that's really where I put a lot of my, like, this is so new. And so assuming that they're going to act like other vaccines and not block transmission in the way that we think we will, I think that's where I kind of attached. I like hooked it. You hooked into something, you know, you hook into this little piece of information that fits this narrative, gut driven or otherwise in your head, and then you just can't let it go. We are differently situated than people who have confronted pandemics in the past because we do witness so many medical and technological miracles daily. Yeah. And the story of our lives have been, look at all of these diseases that vaccines have eradicated. Yeah. We've never taken a vaccine and been told, well, you might still get polio, but it won't be as bad. Yeah. And one of the things that I feel regret about, that I was both wrong and I regret, that I think I was following what the scientists were saying as closely as I could as a person who has no expertise in science or medicine whatsoever. And so I really quickly adjusted to, well, of course you might still get it, but it won't be as bad because of the vaccine. And I sort of acted like people who didn't make that turn with me were either selfish or ignorant. Mm. And that was unfair. That was a huge turn in our thinking to say, here's a vaccine that doesn't prevent transmission. That's huge. And I did not take seriously enough how people struggled with the newness of the tech of the vaccine and how people struggled with what is the vaccine actually doing for me versus the risks. I just, I wasn't serious enough about it because I so badly, this is where I think my desire or optimism or something kept me from being more grounded. I so badly wanted our collective action to solve this. Well, when I look back, I think there were times when I was able to sort of see through the politicization and see the places where people were just being human and not do that judgment that they were ignorant. And then there are times I wasn't, and I can't really piece apart what was happening. I do think that Matoglacius is right. I I did feel in the beginning that the flatten the curve was do what you could. And then all of a sudden, particularly in progressive circles, it was do everything or else all is lost. And I instinctively kind of pulled away from that because it's not my personality. It didn't make sense to me. But I couldn't see why people were doing that. I was just frustrated that they were doing it. You know, like like you said, I couldn't take that beat to say, okay, why are they reacting this way? We're reading a book I can't wait to t- talk to the author on here on the show in a, in a few months. And he describes this psychological tendency we have when the stakes are high to enforce that purity of thought with a fervor. Mm -hmm. And so when I read that, I was like, oh, well, of course, that's what we were doing. The stakes were high. And so you had to be all in or you were the worst. I did that to a certain extent. And when I felt like, no, this is not the right answer, I was not, like you said, I was not gracious enough to understand where people were coming from 
in that reaction. I was angry. I was just angry at people for reacting that way. I did it in both directions, too. I had a lack of graciousness for people who weren't viewing it as I was because they were unwilling to take that ride of the vaccines or the ride of whatever the latest scientific guidance was. And I had a lack of graciousness for people who were more hawkish about it than I was because I did not adequately account for the variance in our geographic experiences of COVID. I did not understand. Mm -hmm. I could not understand what it felt like to be in New York City or in San Francisco or a place that was so densely populated that the transmission was happening like fire. Like we were just talking about that overwhelming, in a blink of an eye, things change. That was not my experience here in Kentucky. And I was so focused on the collective action components of the solution that I did not account properly for the unevenness experienced by people of the problem. Yeah, and we were in such a weird spot because we were experiencing it, but we were also living online in a very coastal, elite, informed media space. So we're reading media from those spaces. We're living a very different existence here in Kentucky. And so there was a lot of tension and a lot of, I don't understand. I don't understand why we're still talking about closing schools two years later. Like, I just, it was frustrating, especially if you're living a very different experience, which we all were living different experiences, depending, even within New York City, even within the coastal, you know, areas. And so I think that that was really hard. And I just, I guess what I regret, and I don't know if I could have done this as an individual, even as an influential individual with a political podcast, but I do have some sadness that when Trump politicized COVID, which he absolutely did, I don't think there's a lot of debate about what happened. He was kind of on board at first and then he decided not to be. I wish we'd had a little sort of political jujitsu, you know, like instead of being, of course, because your side's the worst, like we'd sort of leaned in when they expected us to lean back and say, hey, (sighs) no, like we're still going to flatten the curve. We're still going to distance. We don't have to be the purity police on how far you go with all of this, which just created more conflict. But I mean, I don't. I don't think that's realistic. That to me is like a fantasy I have in my head. I just think that, again, the stakes were high. People were so emotional. People were afraid. But if I could go back and and wave a magic wand, I guess that's what I would do. I think the person who did that the best of anyone that I saw was our governor, Andy Bashir. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder how he reflects on this time period. There were times when his emotions, I think, ran away from him because he was living in the numbers every day. Someone brought yeah. to his desk every day how many dead Kentuckians there were from this. And so I think where he pressed on people a little bit more in the most controversial instance of that was around church services in our state where he pushed that. Uh, I totally understand why. Yeah. I think you're right. Just acknowledging That even when we lived in the same areas, even when we maybe had similar pre-existing conditions or people in our lives who were affected by COVID, it was this thing happening to everybody that no one experienced the same way, but we all experienced it in a deep way. And it's it's hard to get that right. And, And another thing I was thinking about in preparation for this conversation is that where I lacked graciousness... I was also lacking graciousness because of how I experienced the Trump presidency. Yeah. 
you know, I wrote at one point that I I do not like who I was during the Trump presidency. I, I don't like the way I approached him or the people who love him. I thought that I could like hang on to my own principles and and my own sort of sense of righteousness. And that was like trying to walk a straight line through a hurricane. It's not possible. And so I'm really trying to settle myself as we go into a new a new primary Ugh. that Trump is a, is a leading candidate in um, to say, what can I learn from that period? To do the same thing. What did I get wrong? What do I regret? How do I adjust for that? And And also have some grace and understand that I will get things wrong again this time. Yeah. Well, I think there was a way we oriented ourselves towards Trump. And I think there was a way that we oriented ourselves towards science that I really hope we can learn from. I don't want to use science as a weapon again. I don't want to bludgeon people with, I believe in science. I think that's maybe how we got like RFK Jr. right now. You know, like I just, I'm not, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to do that again, not because I think anybody who did it is a morally terrible person. I don't want to do it again because I don't think it works. And I think it alienates people. I think there's a lot of distrust in our institutions. I think there is so much swept up in people's experiences inside the healthcare system that came to play with how they thought, viewed, reacted, felt emotionally about COVID, that using and talking about science in that way, I think, made it worse. Um, I don't want to make it worse. I want to give people the benefit of the doubt because how people feel about science, how people feel about healthcare is is literally life and death, and it certainly was during COVID. And I hope that we can learn from that. I am looking forward to all the sociological studies that will be forthcoming for, you know, the rest of our lives about (laughs) what we've learned about how we talk to people and what works and what doesn't, because it's so, so important. And this was a terrible situation, but we sure as hell learned a lot. We had a lot of contained experiments as far as communicating with people about public health and watching the outcomes of that communication. And I hope we learn from that. I think that what we did in terms of science did not benefit the scientists either. Mm-hmm. I think we put an awful lot on the science. I did. I discounted almost everything I know about human behavior. Yes. Yes. As same. I took in what I was learning from the CDC and the task forces. That is not a problem with them. That's a problem with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think that I, along with lots of other people, kind of had that entitled sense that I have had about medicine throughout my life because it has delivered so much. I just wanted it to deliver here. Yeah. And I didn't have a lot of patience for the process that it takes. I didn't appreciate the decades of research that went into making all those medical miracles that have been the standard fare of my lifetime happen. I think that I often talk about healthcare as though it's one thing. I had a fantastic experience with a physician just this morning before we started recording. So every complaint that I have about healthcare was not contained at all in my experience today. I was scheduled for a 15-minute appointment. I was there for an hour and 15 minutes. I was listened to, cared for. And, and sometimes when you say, well, here are problems with our healthcare system, the doctors who are out there doing what my doctor did today here, you're not doing enough. And yeah. they are moving mountains, you know? And I I just think that Anytime I look to a system for an answer, I will be disappointed. 
And anytime we criticize or critique a system, the people within it will be disappointed. And I don't know in the midst of something as urgent as the early year of COVID-19 was, you can slow down enough to try to unravel all of that. But we could have here. And I wish that we had. Well, and I learned just enough and have just enough research skills to be really dangerous when it came to like the science and the healthcare (laughs) information. Like I definitely during COVID would go out searching for what I wanted to hear. Um, 100% did it a lot. We'll own that. And that's the problem almost with the healthcare system is we all participate enough to feel ownership and to feel like we understand the problems and what's going wrong. And in some ways we do. In some ways we've lived them in really heartbreaking ways. But in other ways, that doesn't make us a virologist. You know, like those people go to school for a reason. And I think there were moments where I just thought, well, I just I understand this (laughs) despite the fact that I have no medical degree and didn't even take that many science classes in college. So I mean, I definitely can look back and see myself doing that, just seeing myself grabbing the pieces of information that confirmed what I wanted to hear. I think we all did that, um, you know, across the board. The Internet is, you know, very, very good at offering you up what you want to hear. I still don't know how I feel about school during this period. One accountability mechanism that Matt Iglesias has in his writing that I really respect is that he has picked apart his position on schooling in a very transparent way. And I would like to be able to mimic that, but I can't. I think I still have a lot of questions for myself about my own parenting during this period and the decisions that I made. I got a message from a listener about, I promise this is related. Will Hurd has put on his website these characteristics of what a modern Republican is or what his aspiration for the modern Republican Party looks like. And most of them are just no-brainer how to be a good human. They seem unrelated to partisan politics to me. Mm -hmm. But one is, one principle is that you put your own family above everything else. And so I said to our listener, that is the one that hits me wrong. Mm -hmm. Because while in the abstract, my family is everything to me, of course, There are many situations where I don't think I have put my own family ahead of everything else, and I don't think that that would be the right thing to do. Yeah. And I think about this period with COVID and how I am certain in retrospect that I could have given both of my daughters, but especially my younger daughter who was in kindergarten the first year that was almost all online. I'm certain that I could have given them a better educational experience if I had withdrawn them from public school and homeschooled them. I'm I'm positive in retrospect. That is no shame on anyone. Everyone tried their hardest. Their schools are wonderful. I'm certain that I could have done a better job if I had just gone all in here Mm -hmm. that year. And I don't know if that was the right move or the wrong move. I put the community ahead of our family in that instance. It would have also been more convenient to do that than what we lived through. But I thought to myself, I understand how school funding works, and I don't want to withdraw my kids and jeopardize funding at the very time the school desperately needs that funding. Yeah. And I don't know if that was the right answer or not. I don't, that individual versus community balance that we never got right during COVID and that we pushed each other around on, and I was part of the pushing sometimes too. 
I have not figured that out yet. Yeah. And I don't know if it is figure outable. Maybe not. You know, I don't know if it is. I just think like, how exactly would you do the calculus, right? Yeah. Because then your child would what? Reenter the public school in a totally different space educationally than all of her peers. What would the cost of that be? Right. So to me, you know, I don't have many regrets around the schooling. My kids weren't out of school. I'm saying that so flippantly now. My kids weren't out of school for that long. It felt interminable at the time. (laughs) But comparatively, I understand now it was not that long. And I, you know, that's where I I struggle with this sort of parents debate and the parental control and all that that has wrought in our politics. Because while I was stressed, I never felt out of control when it came to my kids. I never felt that my kids were suffering harm and I could do nothing about it. That's not an experience I had here in Paducah. We had a head of our school board who was our local virologist. So I was very blessed. I never felt like people were not trying their best to get them back in the school, not trying their best to understand the spread. Like I just felt very, there was just an enormous amount of trust. And so I didn't feel as if I was battling for my kids or I was watching my kids suffering. And I know millions and millions of parents felt that. And I try to remember that when they express that in ways politically that I find abhorrent. That's a terrible feeling. It is a terrible feeling to feel like your child is suffering. You can't do anything about it. It's a terrible feeling. Um, And I know so many people felt that over the course of COVID. And so I just try to remember that because that's not an experience I had. And I'm so grateful for that. And I need to give grace to those who did experience that. For all the reasons you just articulated, I don't feel regret about my decisions about this. I just don't know if they're Mm -hmm. in the bucket of what I got right or what I got wrong. They're certainly in the bucket of things I'm still trying to learn from. I think relatedly, I am still trying to learn from how to deal with the situation. This is a a different expression of that same issue in terms of unevenness of experience by population density. I don't know yet how to talk about and think about and strategize around a risk that is so much riskier to a certain part of the population. And, And even as we were contemplating this episode, and we talk about this with Jennifer Sr. in a minute, that sense that it is behind us when it is still very present for people through long COVID, through the latest strain of COVID, which a lot of people are getting right Word. now. I don't quite know how to best respect people who have a very different experience than the sort of average risk profile. I want to do that badly. I also understand that a society has to have some sense of averages and yeah. and a direction and a strategy that is built for the masses in a number of ways and and balancing that care for people who fall outside the average experience when the average experience is so arbitrary in many ways <laughs> i don't know that yet well i think that that aspect of like what can we learn like that awareness we all have now That everybody is not affected the same by the flu. Everybody's not affected by the same by viruses. I think we all knew that intellectually, but COVID put it in our bones in a way that any intellectual exercise could not. And I think that is a success. The awareness itself is good. We don't have to come to a conclusion about how this is going to sound, work, feel every time for every person. 
The increased awareness, which there absolutely is, that some people were affected differently. Some people are continuing to be affected. And some people will be affected in the future in ways we cannot contemplate or predict. I think that's really, really important. And I think that's really valuable. And I think that is a good transition into the conversation we had with Jennifer Sr. We didn't want to have this conversation like COVID is over. There are lots of decisions, both personal and societal, still being made. And that's why we invited our next guest, Jennifer Sr., back on the show. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic. She's the winner of the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for Future Writing, and she is currently living with long COVID, and we wanted to talk to her about it. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. Jennifer Senior, we are so thrilled to have you back on the show. I'm so excited to be back on the show. I knew that we had to talk with you again the second we hung up from the first time, but especially when I read your piece, What Not to Ask Me About My Long COVID. Mm. It connected with me so much as a person who has fibromyalgia. So another kind of vague, symptoms constantly changing, it's not going to get better, every day is going to be a little bit weirder than the day before it situation. Weird. Such a good word. Yeah. Weird because it's neurological and no one, you know, right. So there's weirdness associated with, oh, I love you. I didn't know that you had, oh, honey, Jesus. Yeah. And the, the list of things that you described as part of your experience, even down to some of the medications I recognized instantly. Mm -hmm. Gabapentin. <laughs> yes. It feels to me like gabapentin is like, we have no idea what to do for you. Let's try this. <laughs> Can we just discuss gabapentin is not like all that great at solving this? I, I, I'm i convinced it's a placebo at this point, unless I took, so, and you're allowed to take a lot of that stuff. And But if you do, you become horribly vague. And you and I have jobs where right. we should, uh, all of our words need to be at least on a shelf that we can reach them. You <laughs> yes. know, yeah, it's tough. That's exactly yeah. it. I stopped taking it because my brain felt so disconnected from my body. Yeah. And I think these vague conditions, at least vague is not the right word. It's very specific in my experience of it. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure yours too. But Whoa. the misunderstood um, or yes. not well understood conditions just lead to that sense of like, well, we're we're just going to throw things against it and see what happens. That makes so much sense to me, though. The way you described how that drug made you feel, it makes sense to me that if you came to doctors with a weird, vague condition that involved pain, they're like, well, we'll just disconnect you from yes. the thing that's telling you, your brain that's telling you in pain. We'll just disconnect that. That should do it, right? But uh, no. Well, then it disconnects you from so many other things uh-huh. and you have to take it in high doses. And it, and I also get the sense that gabapentin is like the old antidepressants where it, they just kind of targeted too many receptors. Mm. You know, that it's a kind of like a, 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 a I don't know, that there's something. A blunt force. Object. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's particularly well targeted like to, to whatever my weirdness to take your word is. But yes, you're absolutely right. I think that that's right, that there's like a, you know, let's just kick the cord out of the wall and hope that works kind of attitude. But there's, it it didn't really work for me anyway. It doesn't work. Well, we dove right into the deep end, but let's back up a bit. Tell us when you thought, wait, something is off. I'm not recovering. Do I have this thing that we talk about all the time that's not well described called long COVID? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, so it's interesting. I mean, because when I got COVID, I'd managed to go a very long time without getting it. And I, I, I may have even gotten it outdoors. And if I didn't, I, I, I got it at this one unventilated venue. I, I said yes to go to the Aspen Ideas Festival because it's outdoors. But then they put me in a panel about friendship. 
right? Based oh, yeah. on my article, which yeah. so they and had me moderate it and sort of shape it. And it was in the one unventilated ballroom. So I could have gotten it there. At first, and I knew I had like a natural killer cell deficiency. I knew I was, but and I knew that I had gotten in my life all sorts of crazy infections and was very incompetent in fighting them, including like spinal meningitis. But I wasn't particularly afraid at that point because I was like, oh, it's Omicron. Everybody seems to get it and seems to be able to fight it. It seems like it's a cold. So, all right, whatever. And I had almost no symptoms. I was essentially asymptomatic. So I'm walking the dog. I'm like driving us, you know, on a four-hour trip to the Cape. I'm doing all these things, not feeling much of anything. And that was ominous. Because when people are so, 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 so sick with Omicron or COVID, what they are really feeling is their own bodies putting up a ferocious fight. Right. Whereas I was just getting trampled by this thing. I was just quietly like it was colonizing every nook and cranny, right? So on day five, I was like, huh, that's weird. I'm feeling... I've got like, I've had this before, labyrinthitis, where um, you feel like you're standing in the cabin of a cruise ship and everything is really wavy and mm. wobbly. And it's like, um, do you remember, you, are you guys old enough where you you had a VCR growing oh, up yeah. at all? Oh, yes. Yeah. So we're like, you'd have a tracking problem and the screen yeah, would Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would have like a flipping screen where like just, it, it would everything would bounce. And I was like, huh, that's odd. And then like by day 10, I was like, okay this feels like the Blair Witch Project. I just feel like I've got a Verite camera on my shoulder and like the world is bouncing when I chew, it's bouncing when I walk. There's no smoothing out device to just make the world look, you know, like a, I mean, just imagine what it would look like if you just had a thing bouncing. I mean, here, I could take my screen. This is like what the yeah. world looks like. You know, oh I, I for listeners taking the screen and bouncing it up and down. So because that's what it looked, you know, your brain automatically corrects that so that nothing jostles and mine wasn't correcting it so on about day 10 i panicked i assumed it was an inner ear thing so i went on a big ent adventure and i had no doctors my regular doctor had sort of retired during covid as many had and like an idiot he told me not to take back slovid forgetting he had treated me for 27 years and that had involved hospitalizing me for a million infections you know so like i I wanted to kind of kill him like i i couldn't believe that he had sort of forgotten who he was treating you know because he was so unimpressed with how i presented and every i I did not have the class so all the long haul clothes all the long covid clinics are set up for a certain kind of suite of symptoms. Like, oh, you're short of breath. Breath, yeah. Exhausted. You have muscle aches. I didn't have any of that shit. I had everything that I have is bizarro world, weird. I'm just going to keep coming back to your excellent word because it's all neurological. Okay, so like the bounciness has never changed, but I also get very dizzy. I feel like a bobblehead. I feel like my brain is moving. I feel like it's an ice cube being swirled in a martini glass so that if I throw my weight to the right, my brain feels like it's lurching to the right, which is obviously not what's happening. I'd be dead if my my brain were loose. It's something else. There was about three months where I had ear fullness and roaring tinnitus then it went away now it's back but only in one ear i feel like my 
uh, head vibrates every time I walk and every time I talk. It feels like there's like I'm frying an egg in my head, which is uh, the other reason I wanted to be lying down uh, because so for listeners, I'm like horizontal right now. I My head seems to vibrate less when I lie down. But I'll be, I'll want to pass out by the end of this podcast. I mean, it'll be horrible, you know, um, and my ear will be really be roaring. Now I have POTS, which is an autoimmune disease where when you stand up, your heart rate goes up, you're sort of tachycardic, you go up to about 100 or 110 or 100. Unlucky people have like 120 or 130. Oh. I'm more like about 100. Whereas when I'm sitting or lying down, I'm more like 60 because I used to be in you know, good shape. My blood pressure was too high when I stood up for a while. Then it was too low. You have to take beta blockers or, you know, just all this stuff to, and it, it, it affects your whole autonomic nervous system. So like your blood pressure, all the things you don't think about, your, your breathing will be weird for a minute and then it'll be normal. Now I don't have any breathing issues, but I mean, it's just. It, it, it just fried your circuit board. It sounds like. Yeah, fry, that's exactly right. That's yeah. a perfect way of describing it. My body feels kind of like Martian soil. It just feels inhospitable to life. Mm. It doesn't feel like it ought to be lived in. You know, it's very hard to explain that. And again, that ha- that goes to that whole disconnection thing. Like, let's just kick the cord out of the wall since your body doesn't seem to want you there. Yeah. A hard reset on the circuit board, but that's not how bodies work. <laughs> Even if it is a good metaphor. Well, and actually, every once in a while, I'll get a jacked up dose of steroids thinking they can do the hard reset, right? Like, let's just blitzkrieg her because clearly she's inflamed, which I am. They're great. If I could live on steroids, I would because they, they fix the problem. But mm. of course, you can't. And then the second I go off and it comes roaring back. Yeah, it's like Red Mart. Exactly. Mm. It's like I was never on them. It's like the whole thing was a dream that I was well. Mm. So, you know, I'm contemplating taking them when my son comes home from summer camp. He's 15. And, you know, how many more summers do I have with this kid? You know, and I wanted to go away with him. And I just don't think I can. You know, I think it's going to be very modified. I mean, I could take steroids, but then I'll be immune compromised in a big way while I'm on them. And I can't get caught. I mean, it's just, it's a nightmare, you know. It's pretty, it's pretty, it's tough. It's really, and everybody else seems just great. I envy everybody on the subway who's not wearing a mask. It's just like, I've gotten COVID, I can get it again. You know, like, I'd love to be able to kick COVID's ass. I mean, but I can't. That brutal honesty about it is what I have really admired in your writing. And as Sarah and I have been talking about, like, what we got wrong about COVID, we have this, like, past tense orientation to it, even as everybody's out there getting it again. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we have no clue what the risk of long COVID is associated with whatever the latest strain is. And I wonder how it lands with you to like be doing these sort of COVID retrospectives. I mean, I love that your piece started out like, I didn't read about this because I'm sick of COVID. We're all sick of COVID. How does it land with you to hear COVID described in sort of the past tense? And what can we do better around that? Well, I I don't know what we can. It's a really generous questions but the truth is i mean okay so how does it land with me it's a gut punch every time some people say it because i experienced that to be true like my now former colleague ed young was very dedicated to writing about all of us long haulers out there and saying that we're really not 
paying enough attention to this and that this really is a crisis. And it could be that over time, more people will wind up like me because as people get infected and reinfected, eventually this will happen to like a lot of people. And I'm just, you know, a canary, you know, rolled over in a coal mine, but that's not how I experience it. And I've been very blunt with it. Like the world does look like, I don't insist that my husband or son wear a mask. The world does look like it's ready to move on. And, Mm -hmm. and they're all tired of it. And my son's 15 and no one around him masks. And also I'm conscious of being like an older mother. You know, I had, I got pregnant at 37, had him at 38. I want him to feel like I've certain, like I've got a certain kind of vitality left, which Mm -hmm. I did, you know, before all this. I I think I'm going to make myself a little bit unpopular with people who are kind of the diehards in this universe saying like, I don't really feel like the, like the world is obliged to mask up because Mm -hmm. of the likes of me. I I just don't think that's fair anymore. I think everybody and that kids ought to mask up at school. I think everybody did that for a good long while. And I think it saved my life. If I'd gotten the OG COVID pre-vax, everybody has been very clear with me. I would have died because I had a a ferocious cytokine storm in response to Omicron. I was really in the midst of an acute autoimmune flare that seems to have been what all of the Meniere's disease symptoms that I had, which is an inner ear thing. I mean, my body really attacked itself hard and still seems to be doing so on some level. And in fact, there's even some thought that people who got the, I got the Omicron vaccination like 12 weeks later because I was doing so much better and I was going to a wedding and I didn't, my my stepdaughter's wedding. And I, I didn't want to get run the risk of getting sick again because I couldn't get sick again. Um, And people were getting reinfected with Omicron just six weeks later. It's like, it's very quick to reinfect. And there's some evidence that some people, when they get that vaccination, they make antibodies to their own antibodies, which means uh, effectively they still have the spike proteins still in them. Wow. So I I could have had a double blow with that. I was mm. trying to, you know, and people are just starting to hypothesize, uh, hypothesize that that's a thing. And then, of course, it's going to give anti-vaxxers all kinds of ammunition. But of course, I'm convinced that the original vaccines were what, Right. saved me in the first place. And if I had never gotten Omicron and I had just gotten the Omicron booster, it would have served me very well. I wouldn't have long COVID. You know, I mean, the problem was that because I was already in this like riled up immune, autoimmune state, it was probably in hindsight, the wrong move. I think we're going to learn so much about the mistakes that were made and what we've learned. But I also think, you know, I was reading about the National Long COVID Research Initiative where they're looking at these treatments. And I do think because it is so weird, like back to best word, because long COVID is so weird and it sweeps up so many things, autoimmune response, vascular, respiratory, like, I do wonder what we will learn about other conditions as we dig into this particularly weird one. Like, what will we discover? What will we figure out about? We can't just kick the plug out of the wall and that works. Like, when we, if we find something, God willing, that does work, like, I just wonder what else we will learn. It's, it just seems like it encompasses, um, like, 
how many people read about long COVID and have the reaction to Beth does? Oh, that sounds like my autoimmune thing, or that sounds like the vascular issues I have. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just, that's the only thing I, that I hope comes from this. No, you're right. And because it's um, a mosaic, they'll yes. be, like, you know, they'll be looking at a lot of different conditions. I think you're right. Also, neurological conditions are not very well understood. Oh. And so, and EBV Epstein-Barr was like not taken seriously for so long. And now it finally is. So in that way, you're right. The depressing thing is, I think it'll take a generation. Mm. I think they'll be quite old by the time they figure a lot out. And number two, I looked at the same thing you did. And Sarah, honestly, like all of the trials that they're doing, I've taken all those drugs. Yeah, they're very limited in the treatment. And, and I've done all of them, including yeah. like some of the really, I took intra, intravenous immunoglobulin, you know, IVIG, yeah. um, which is one of the more expensive ones. And I had reason to, you know, uh, there are all sorts of things that they're mm -hmm. looking at. And it's like, yeah, I've done that, done that. You yeah. know, when I finally found top tier care, they do all that for you. Yeah, And I'm really glad that I, it, it didn't do a damn thing for me, mm. nothing. So, you know, I, I mean, I'm, and I've also done some wacky stuff where like it's withstood this peer review of, I'm sorry, the scrutiny of peer review, but it's like an N of 10, you know, like, so I did like hyperbaric oxygen therapy, didn't do anything. And then you look at the study and it turns out it helped with people's fatigue and brain fog. Well, fine, but I don't have either of those. Yeah. But I did it anyway, in yeah. case, you know, no, didn't mm. do anything. And and then you have all these extremely well-meaning people who are like, have you done acupuncture? And it's like, have I done acupuncture? Of course. Like, what do you, what do you take me for? <laughs> who doesn't love acupuncture? It's fabulous. I've done tons of acupuncture. Yeah. And it's great, but not for this, you know, no. like, you know, like, um, and, you know, and people would have known by now, you know, if that would yeah. have solved the if problem. If acupuncture <laughs> picked long COVID, it would be. Uh, it'd be every, like, we'd everywhere. know that. It's, it's not like, have you heard of this tiny, obscure little treatment call? I mean, like, what you, like yeah, I know about that. Um, you know, so I've tried Vegas nerve stimulation. I had a gizmo sent from England. I mean, you know, tried that. You know, there's like all sorts of, I mean, people are trying. Yeah. We're flying, you know, there is more spaghetti like <laughs> against the, the wall. wall of my apartment. Yeah. Than like you You're know, like that place in New Jersey where people dumped like 3,000 pounds of spaghetti in the creek and they couldn't figure out why. <laughs> there you go. Oh my God. I am that. <laughs> better you that, are that than creek. bodies. You know, it's that <laughs> of Sopranos. If you've you got things at the bottom of a creek in New Jersey, better it's it be pasta, pasta or bodies. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know what I do sometimes when something really weird is happening in my body? I pull up those websites that illustrate how deep the ocean is. They just mm. have you scroll and scroll and scroll to get a sense of, of how deep the ocean goes and how little we know as you go deeper. And I just tell myself, like, this is the body, Beth. Like, there's just a lot of unexplored terrain. We just don't understand it all yet. I love you. First of all, that's brilliant. Second of all, how soothing mm. it is and how reassuring it is. And it just makes me remember, like, I'm part of something bigger than whatever this experience I'm having is right now. Yeah. And it just kind of it, it just kind of settles me in, which I think might be a lovely transition mm -hmm. to talking about your new cover story for The Atlantic. If you'll stick around and spend some time with us on that. Oh, my God. Let me just get my tissue out now. <laughs> oh, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine, guys. <laughs> You're so nice. Thanks. I mean, that was like the most personal thing I ever wrote. So I'll talk about that all day. 
Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Jennifer, this piece, which is about your mother's sister, your aunt Adele, who was institutionalized. Sarah can't even get the introduction out. That's how good it is. At a very young age and how you reconnected with her later in life. I'm going to tell you the first thing I thought when I finished your piece. 
Did you write All Joy No Fun after you found out about your aunt? That would have been highly precocious of me because I did find out when I was 12. So no. <laughs> oh, I thought sorry, so, but I was I like 1998. Mean. Yeah. Okay. If you've listened to this podcast, you know that I became obsessed with Jennifer when she wrote that book. It's my favorite parenting book of all time. And I thought the pieces clicked for me because I thought I always read that book and it just felt filled with such grace for parents. And that's why I loved it. But like when I read your piece, I was like, it wasn't just grace. It was perspective. It was this powerful, powerful perspective of her grandparents' decision and what that means. I thought the the way you spoke about their decision and how it really was that they weren't given a choice, they weren't given great options. And I thought, oh, okay, that's why that book feels like it doesn't shouldn't be on a parenting shelf and it should be somewhere else because this wisdom of experience within her own family, I would imagine animates so much of what you do up until you even wrote this just incredible piece. So that is, no one has made that connection for me. And it's really beautiful and astute. Funny thing is that if it were there, it was rattling around in some back alley of my consciousness. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. My grandparents, I'm assuming Adele provided them with joy. You know, I'm also assuming... She was a source of real anxiety for the brief 21 months that she lived with them. Mm. Because my grandparents knew that something was the matter and no one could tell them. First, everyone insisted that no, something wasn't, which made my grandmother feel dismissed and paranoid, I am sure, and probably less than. Mm. Like she couldn't handle the routine challenges of motherhood when in fact there were more complicated challenges that were going on and she caught them and the doctors poo-pooed them mm. because she was a working class woman without a college education who lived in Flatbush, you know, in Brooklyn. Then to be told that you've got like a microcephalitic imbecile or idiot or whatever the crude words were that were technical. And not even be prepared. She was just there for her own treatment. Oh, exactly. Took my breath away. She goes to the doctor because she has like a like a, a persistent sore throat, and the doctor doesn't look at her, but looks at my aunt who's like on her knee, and d- diagnoses my aunt very crassly before even looking at my grandmother. And suddenly that overtakes the whole visit. And the next thing, you know, my my little my mother, who at the time must have been about five and a half, her parents are off to New York City, going from one specialist to the next trying to figure out how to fix their daughter. And I didn't get into this, but because my, you know, microcephaly is this condition where your your head's tinier. And one specialist they were sent to did the kind of operation that they still do today, which is they open up the skull so that the brain has a chance to grow. But the doctor looked at them and said, there's nothing I can do. The skull closed because the brain had stopped growing. And not the other way around. Her brain was done at eight months. And that's why the skull plates closed. That's the reason. So I think that is part of, I mean, they therefore took this very literal physiological event as some kind of signal that, okay, so that means that she has very limited potential. There's very... There's very little in there for to cultivate. She won't give you any joy. 
There won't be any fun. There mm. won't, it'll be only a drag on your family. It'll be only from this point forward, she'll be a burden and an albatross to have her in your life. And the best thing you can do, Mr. and Mrs. Halperin, is get rid of her and put her in a school for her, for you, and for your and for your daughter, Rona, who does not have this condition. That's the best thing you can do. And so that's what they did. I mean, who were they to quarrel? You know, who were they to... Doctors had so much authority. I mean, they, back still I do. Mean, they, and they still do. That's right. But I think, you know, you're sort of cowed by them if you're... You know, my grandfather... He went to college on the GI Bill, but he went to like a local, I don't know where he went. It was like somewhere in Bayonne, I think. Uh, you know, it w- wouldn't have occurred to him to become a doctor or anything. I mean, I think he just still, they they just took the, this advice. They, and also the stigma, I mean, uh, let's just discuss in 1953, I'm sure that plenty of people walked around believing that this was a, a kind of punishment for some kind of sin, mm-hmm. right? If you had a child like that, or there's something shameful, it's in your genes. And I might've had some kind of added stigma if you're Jewish, right? Like I'm now just thinking about, we are so close to the Holocaust at that mm-hmm. point in 1953 that Jews are in some ways an inferior people. So of course they're going to produce a line of defective people, which is the term they used, defectives. And assimilation was such the name of the game. Yes. World War II. Thank you. Thank you. Totally. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The imperative to fit in. Thank you. And in fact, I, I should have scribbled in a line about just that, right? Like that this was like a real cultural value and very important. And all the neighborhood kids whispering about this, you know, that like my aunt had was, they heard that, you know, and so my poor mother walking around like, oh, she's got this sister who was sent to reform school. I mean, you know, so, you know, it turned my mother into this high achieving. I mean, my grandmother, you read this in the piece, but my great grandmother then moved into the bed that was intended for my mother's younger sister. And my great grandmother, who was not a sophisticated person psychologically, and I wrote in there that she had all of the kind of subtlety of a fly swatter, which is really true. But, you know, she, she told my mother when my mother was like 13 years old that she had to be good enough for two. You got to wonder, like, what's worse, saying the quiet part out loud in the most harmful way possible or just not saying anything at all? It's like, do we have any other choices available to us in the 50s? I mean, I feel like what's worse might be might be believing that, too. Like, what yeah. kind of self-view do you have if you articulate that to a child? Like, that's mm-hmm. there's just so much pain in it. You're right. And I'm sure she was in some ways looking out for her daughter, right? If it's like... Her, right. This is my great grandmother looking out for my grandmother saying, I, I just want, you know, my child's one parenting experience to count. Mm. Right. In some ways. So she has to have the the most extraordinary da- daughter possible. She probably thought she was doing something protective in some way. Well, and I just thought what was so incredible that you articulated, and I don't remember the name of the the author you spoke to, but she talks about like when we did that, when we took anyone different and put them someplace else, then we just perpetuated this idea that it's different. But it's not different because (laughs) every family has this. And But if you cannot integrate that and see that as a common human experience, then, of course, it just compounds and compounds where everybody thinks this is different, this is bad, 
you know, instead of I, I recite all the time. Like, I love the part in um, Temple Grandin's biography where her mother said, different, not less, different, not less. That's what she did on a loop. Different, not less. And, and I just it, think it's so powerful. So now I'm going to get all checked up. What made me cry was film adaptation of that or the TV adaptation with yeah. Claire Danes. Where, and Julia where, Orman. Right. And Julia, where, where uh, who is the doctor? Was it David Strathairn or somebody who, a beautiful actor, who finally looks at Julia Orman and said, you know, because Refrigerator Mothers were the mm-hmm. kind of, that, that was what was um believe back then and she had and he finally looked at her and he said you haven't been doing everything wrong you've been doing everything right and just like the relief and you know if anybody had just looked at my grandmother and been like you're not crazy something is different about your daughter but we can help you and we will have supports for you I mean like god if that had just been available and if the, uh, she just must have felt so gaslit in some way and then so helpless and that to go back to your or no wait Sarah which one of you just said oh that like what's worth an environment where nothing is said or that is said my mom lived in an environment where both, both. were true nothing was said and then that was said to her that she had to be perfect right and it's like oh my god I mean my mother was not ever really told what was the going on like what what was was there something the matter? Like, why was her sister not coming home? She kept asking. And I, my grandparents must have cooked up this excuse on the fly. Like, that no doctor was counseling them. They just said one day, we're taking Adele to walking school, as if that were a thing. And my six-and-a-half-year-old mom was like, oh, okay. And for a while, thought nothing of it, but then kept saying, when's Adele coming home? Because she wanted her baby sister back because she'd been playing with her, you know? And then like at eight, she had this full on meltdown saying, how long could it possibly take for her to learn how to walk? Like what's going on here? And my grandparents, my poor grandparents didn't know how to answer the question. Like, I mean, can you imagine just like having your poor daughters? It was the only time my grandma started to cry that my mom said that she saw her because she could see the helplessness and frustration in her daughters. I mean, my mother was losing it. My grandmother didn't know how to console her and couldn't bring herself to say the answer is never. Mm. Your sister's never coming home. Mm. And that's just what a terrible thing to have to navigate. And how terrible she had no options. I just think so many people just cordoned it off. And as painful as it was that your grandparents kept going and kept going and trying and going and trying to these institutions where I'm sure the energy was not good and they picked up on that. I mean, that's something to me that is something very powerful in a, in a culture that tells you close the door and walk away. Even though that they were, you know, so quiet at home, I just I still think God, that must have been so hard. I'm sure there were lots of voices in their head saying, just close the door and walk away fully. Thank you for saying that. That is an extremely compassionate and generous thing to say because I do give them so much credit for visiting her every weekend. They were told the best thing for her was to send her away. But my grandparents were like, but we miss her and we still want to get to know her. And so they went. And as you point out, like they could have not done that. And other families did walk away. Mm-hmm. Like Arthur Miller, as I discovered, never visited his son, Daniel, who got sent away when he was four. And Daniel had down, 
syndrome, which is like, if you just think about Down syndrome, that's so amazing to me now because there's so much to cultivate in a Down syndrome. I mean, and adults with Downs can live on their own and like, or at least live in these kind of only lightly assisted settings. I had no idea. I didn't even know that about Arthur Miller. No, nobody knew about I mean, it wasn't in his Times obit. It wasn't in, I think, maybe the LA Times was the only, he doesn't, but maybe the LA Times obit mentioned it, but that was it. Like his own autobiography in Time Bends, he doesn't mention it. Eric Erickson, the very storied psychologist, like a developmental psychologist, you know, doesn't, told his kid, his three kids, that their baby, I don't know if it was a brother or sister, died at birth, immediately put in an institution. Mm. And I it's, I don't know if they visited, but I'm going to guess, well, I mean, look, if they said that the baby was had died, I don't know. Yeah. But your family story continues. Yeah, because I, we all reconnected with Adele. So my mom was so traumatized by having her sister taken away that she did not see her sister for 40 years. She only went to visit her when my grandfather died and she knew that it would be hard for my grandma to go alone. But she went twice. It was not comfortable. She was at that point in a like kind of home setting with others uh, who had intellectual disabilities. But I don't, the home was probably not that great. They were left alone in a room to spend time with Adele. And they sort of didn't know how to connect. And I went one time because I was very curious. I was 28 and it was just, it didn't quite work. It was really intriguing because my mom got very tender around her. And also because my mom was in this crazy needle pointing phase and there were all these needle points marching along the wall in Adele's room. So it was almost like a twin study, like a separated at birth study. And we discovered that Adele could sing and my mother mother had studied opera and Adele could sing on key. And I was like, oh my God, this is so eerie. They're still really, you can see the, the similarities, the family similarities. But then another like 21 years went by. And I said to her, to my mom, I was like, I want to go and see her again. And this time I said, I really, I want to write about her. And you don't have to come with me. It's totally fine. I get it. And my mom said, no, you know, she's living in a different place now. Let's go. I've never, I've never met them. Let's, let's go do this. And that was the beginning of this crazy journey where we reconnected because this family was amazing. And they had all these wonderful in-jokes with her. And they could, Adele just was like a totally different person and had a much larger vocabulary with all these words at her disposal. When when we had visited her 21 years prior, all she had was yes and no. And this time she, there was just this explosion of vocabulary. And, and the same eerie thing happened. Like we showed up at the door and my mom was in a bright red sweater and so was Adele. And they were both in this crazy necklace making phase. So they were each wearing chunky beaded necklaces that they had just made. So I have this picture of them and it's in the story of the two of them in these bright red sweaters with their chunky necklaces. I mean, it's wild. So, yeah. I gasped when you talked about her language and and you came back to that talking about a, a younger child and how developed 
this child's language was and thinking about like, what if she had been given this hundredth of a chance? It's not a fair comparison at all, but it made me think so much about the decision my family went through when my grandmother had Alzheimer's to move her out of her home and going through that thought process of like, well, we genuinely don't know how to care for her. There are genuine risks of of us trying to, to her. But then what's available is so depressing. And just reading about the difference that it made for her to be with this loving family who did know how to care for her, it really took my breath away. So the inadequacies of like memory care of all of these facilities, even the best, it's the luck of the draw. Mm -hmm. I mean, Adele had lived in one residential home setting that wasn't all that hot, that clearly wasn't great, right? Because she showed up at her new home, we discovered, with scabies. So Mm. it was, that place was clearly kind of neglectful too. And and depressing. I mean, my mother and I found it depressing when we visited Whereas we walk into the Ayala home, that's the last name of the folks who were, you know, caring for her. And they are so loving. And you're pointing out that I got my aunt genetically tested and then found somebody who had her very rare gene mutation, very rare, um, who lived just outside of Kansas City, a seven-year-old girl, and saw all the resources that she got, right? Like from the state that she got free occupational therapy and speech therapy, physical therapy. Um, and then she, the, the local school was obliged to ha- take her in and they w- did it with open, enthusiastic arms and gave her an individualized education plan and gave her supplementary tutoring and all of this extra stuff, more speech therapy and more help. And then on top of that, as you're pointing out, she had a mom who was just willing to give her life over. Mm. But what if you don't have, I mean, her mom was really willing to do that. And her mom was very interested in being a stay-at-home mom in any event at that point. Would I have done that? Would I have pitched, I mean, I've I've had to ask myself that very hard question. Mm -hmm. Pitched my whole career overboard. I mean, I may have found somebody who was really skilled and I would have paid for someone to come to our house every day and have, you know, stimulate my child like that. I would have found the bet, but I probably would have outsourced it and I would have sat there and and it's hard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still kind of a 24-7 deal. We don't have to, and then I'm lucky because I would have had the dough for that. Mm-hmm. Like, what about all the people who were, there's some kind of, where it's an in-between spot where you don't like, and you know what, they can get by on one income, right? Mm -hmm. That family like could get by with just the dad working. They were in a not very expensive part of the Kansas city suburbs. Yeah. And the education to interpret, Mm -hmm. to research and interpret and integrate all of this into your life. I mean, it's, it's stunning. Well, Grace, this mother is just amazing. I mean, she's just one of the appropriate names. I I know first and last because her last name is Feist and she a feistier woman you will not meet right it's like Dickens named her you know <laughs> I mean, just crazy like where's that at you know yeah. I will tell you that the the reason you have a Pulitzer <laughs> because it's not an easy thing that you did to say I'm going to see what might have been that is 
very painful. I mean, we're skipping over some of the most difficult piece, parts of this piece where we talk about what institutionalization looked like. It was horrific. It was horrific. Yeah. With children, so babies, children in horrific conditions. And to face that and to say, that's not even enough. I want to think about what could have been different. You know, when we talked about Felix's diagnosis, I got emails and I knew I would. Thank you for telling this story. I recognize the signs of my son. And it's like, that's the impact of work like this that you will probably never know is that people will see something. They'll feel differently about the decision. They won't feel as alone. That is the service of a piece like this is the service of Adele's life, of her family's decisions. But you cannot have that service if you do not face it openly. And with bear your heart this way, it's not it doesn't have the same impact. And I just think that it's incredible. That's very, very kind of you to say. I mean, so look, some of the nicest emails I'm getting are from people who say we have a child at home who's physically or intellectually disabled. And thank you for reminding me of why I'm going through all this effort on the days when it's really, really hard. Mm-hmm. You know, because the alternatives outsourcing the care can be so risky. Yeah. The places that are dedicated to this, even with the best of intentions, have people who sometimes are, you know, not all that dedicated. And as you say, back when we had larger state institutions, we still have them. But I mean, like that, they were these gothic palaces of horror. My aunt was in Willowbrook, which was later the subject of an expose by Geraldo Rivera, of all people. Listen, we all hold multitudes, okay? <laughs> oh, totally. And, you know, I, this was an unambiguous public good that he did yeah. when he was a younger reporter. He exposed Willowbrook as being this just medieval, pal, you know, mansion Torture. of torment. Yeah. Torture. I mean, people rotting in their own diapers and having no stimulation at all and wailing and rocking on the floor with no toys. Two attendants for 80 people on a floor being force fed quickly because they had to get on to the next patient to eat. I mean, it's a horrible, hor- it was, I don't, and I don't, I don't even know what happened to my aunt. She can't even tell me about it. You know, she, she, she doesn't have the words to convey it, you know, and who knows what kind of PTSD was going on there. Right. You know, that was the most powerful part of your article. One of the most powerful parts is when, because I was following your train of thought. I was with you like, oh, they're both, both your mother and your aunt have this like tight sense of control of their boundaries. Isn't that interesting? And it's like the needle point. They share that. And then somebody says they both experienced the trauma. And I'm like, oh, my God, of course, of course they did. Of course, that would be a natural response to the trauma that they experience. And I was embarrassed that I hadn't like seen your aunt through that lens and made that connection. Same. So that was what was so, okay. So what you're referring to is a moment when I had always, I, I point out that I had always assumed that my mom's deep need for control was, because of course what I discovered about Adele is like, she's very fastidious. She's very meticulous. You can't put anything in the wrong place in the kitchen. My mother won't even let me like load the dishwasher. She's the, the exact same way. You know, like you try and help in the kitchen and forget it. You're like, shoot out of the room. You know, and, um, <laughs> you know, my and my mother, she's, my mother, this is a great metaphor. When she was a lawyer, she would keep like a bag of M&Ms in her desk and have one M&M per day. Yeah. No. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, 
that's the kind it's of like control. Obama she, with the seven almonds, man. So Obama and the seven almonds, right? And they're shaped the same, right? They're super lean. They look like you're, you know, they're like baseball bats, right? They're just like these, <laughs> you know, like that. I, I mean, I do not have a baseball bat figure. That's not what I look like. I'm like the Oscar Madison to her feelings. Like, you know, I'm very different. Yeah. Bat. So like I, I'm, a, and so, and I thought, okay, my mom is, you know, trying to control her environment because she lost so much control as a little girl that her sister was sort of sent away. And, but then I, and I thought, and then I looked at Adele and my first thought was, oh no, it's just in the genes. They're just both kind of, they have whatever kind of weird, complex things that, you know, make people slightly anal. And then it was <laughs> the daughter of the Ayala's, the home where she was living, who said to me, who knows, you know, who knew Adele very well. And she, who said to me, well, I don't know, maybe Adele is really controlling in response to trauma that she experienced. Because, right, she lived in Willowbrook. It was, I mean, and, and when I think about the ways, I mean, that she could have been physically abused, she could have been sexually abused. We're, we're just never going to know. We're mm. never going to know. She doesn't have the words. Mm. I was reading this piece thinking about the fact that the same person wrote it who wrote the Steve Bannon profile that I still think about like weekly. I think all the time about the accountant whose funeral online is this grand, mm -hmm. fantastical moment and his in funeral in real life would be hardly attended. And, and to me, like the thread of all of this is you just keep coming back and saying, God, people are carrying around a lot in our bodies, in our family stories, things we haven't even unearthed yet, but our bodies know them. Thank you for bringing up that part of the story. We talk about that part all the time. Well, it's very poignant and it does explain a lot of the estrangement that, yeah, that Americans feel and the things they carry. That's exactly yeah. right. And do I carry a chip on my shoulder for being such a fan before everyone else? I do. Thank you. <laughs> Whenever it's like that Eugene, your senior piece, I'm like, I've been reading her for decades. Get out of here, y'all. I love you for that. Can I tell you, like, people saying to me, like, wow, you've really flourished at the Atlantic. It's like, you just weren't reading me at New York Magazine. You know, I've been, I like, was. I, like, thank you. It's like, what do you think? Like, I woke up at 51 and became, like, decent at my job? Does that happen? Like, yeah, overnight stardom at 51. Because, like, I was just, like, you know, eating bonbons and watching reality television. And tell them, what do people think I've been doing? And I love read my book. So thank you. That's thank amazing. you. I love it thank so you. much. You're welcome back here anytime, obviously. We love having you. Love you guys. Really. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Jennifer Sr. We hope today's show helped you reflect on how your COVID experience shaped you and where you feel good about your choices and where you wish you would have done things differently. That's a valuable exercise. It's not a judgment on who you are as a person. It's just a valuable self-reflective exercise. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our Managing Director. Maggie Pinton is our Director of Community Engagement. Xander Singh is the composer of our theme music with inspiration from original work by Dante Lima. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. 
Sarah Greenup, Julie Haller, Tiffany Hassler, Emily Holiday, Katie Johnson, Katina Zuganellis Kasling, Barry Kaufman, Molly Kors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley, The Hutchins, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Jen Ross, Sabrina Drago, Becca Dorval, Christina Quartararo, Shannon Frawley, The Adair Family, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.